Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Two years have passed. The Apostle Paul has languished in prison. Now that he hasn't been busy, he's been writing letters, letters that you know if you know your New Testament because you've read them. His prison epistles come from this period when he's out of circulation as far as uh, his itinerant ministry is concerned. And during that time, the authorities in Jerusalem have not forgotten about him. They still have him on their hit list, and there are still plans afoot, planning to, plans to ambush and kill Paul on the way. Now, we read about it at the beginning of chapter 25, and all of this comes to a head when uh, Festus, the governor, calls him before him, the, the dispute, the debate goes on between the Jewish authorities and Paul. It becomes apparent that this is not a matter for uh, judicial inquiry, rather that it is a religious matter, that the charge of treason which they brought against Paul was bogus, and the effect of that is to leave the governor, Festus, in a quandary. Because Paul has done something that, which was unexpected as far as the governor is concerned. He has appealed to Caesar, verse 11 of chapter 25. And uh, having appealed to Caesar as a subject of Rome, which was an unusual thing for people to have in those days, it then places the governor in a position, what is he going to write to Caesar? I mean, there's a sense in which Festus's career hangs on this action that he's agreed to do publicly, he's agreed to send his prisoner, who's a Roman citizen, and which was his right, to Caesar as the highest court of appeal within the emperor empire. But the big question was, I have to write a report about this man. What can I say about him? That's the problem on Festus's mind. Enter King Agrippa the second, Herod Agrippa the second, and his sister, Bernice, or in Latin, Veronique. And uh, maybe you prefer Veronique. If your name's Veronique, I'm sorry that your namesake here is a sister to King Herod Agrippa. And this young, this guy is a young guy at this stage, Herod Agrippa the second, is part of a dynasty. I've learned to say dynasty. My friends here from London and he's wondering how on earth I'm getting all these Americanisms. This is the way you do it. You just have to conform to the language of the people you're with. This is missionary work. You <laughs> translate into the language of the people. So he's part of this Herod dynasty. Herod the Great, who was in power at the time of the birth of Jesus. And who was the one who wanted to kill the babies and did kill the babies in Bethlehem. Herod, uh, uh, sorry, Herod Antipas who was in power at the time Jesus started his public ministry and who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist, he's the one that Jesus called a fox, which was not meant to be a compliment. Then there was Herod Agrippa I, who was in power in the early chapters of the book of Acts and had James put to death. We read about that earlier in Acts. And now there is Herod Agrippa II. He had put, been put in place in this, he'd been given this job by his friend, childhood friend, Claudius, who had become the emperor. 
I, Claudius, that one. And the kingdom that he'd been given was what was really just the remnants of what had Herod the Great had had uh, to rule over, just a kind of fraction of that, that kingdom in northern Palestine, although in time he was given bits more as he showed himself worthy and so on. So he's a small-time small king, really. But he's part of the machinery of the Roman emperor. And in gratitude to the, uh, to the emperor later on in his life, he renamed Caesarea Philippi, which was named after a previous Caesar. He renamed it Neronius after Nero, who was the emperor then. All that is just a little bit of nonsense that you may want to forget, okay? But that's the background to this. So the fact of the matter is, if Festus is in a quandary, he has to write a statement, a record to send with a prisoner that he's sending to Rome, and he involves Agrippa in the process. Now let me just summarize the important points that were, that were necessary at the time in the court documents. First of all, the case so far. The Jewish community, almost to a man, have sued for the death penalty on the Apostle Paul on a number of charges. Number two, Festus's findings so far are that it was impossible to move to a formal verdict at a trial because Paul had now appealed to Caesar. So he was going over the head of the governor it was above his pay grade now to come to any kind of conclusion. And so Festus has now publicly announced that he himself has found no charges of treason in what Paul is teaching. That Paul therefore had done nothing worthy of death. That is Festus's findings so far. Thirdly, the appeal to Caesar. Paul had expressed this right of appeal and see to Caesar and Festus had allowed that appeal. Fourthly, the nature of the present proceedings, it was not a continuation of the trial that we are looking at this evening, because that had been brought to an end by Paul's appeal. It was not a new trial that was taking place. That would take place before Caesar. It was an inquiry in order to furnish the governor with enough material to put in the charge sheet as he sent it to the emperor. That was the purpose of the inquiry. That's the fifth thing. Because he was obliged to instruct Caesar as to the case that Caesar was being asked to try. And the, the inquiry was being held to elicit from Paul what he actually believed and taught and preached and practiced so that the information sent to Caesar might be accurate. And so that Caesar, therefore, might be able to come to a conclusion, does this man constitute a threat to the Roman state and treason against the person of the emperor? Now, you, you can understand, therefore, from what we just read this evening, that this was obviously important to the Roman state to get this right. This, man jo this man's job hung on what he was going to write to Caesar. I mean, he, he's writing to an absolute monarch, and he is just a petty little official in a small area of the world in this enormous empire. You don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to get it wrong, because your neck is in the noose here. 
So it was important to the state, but it was also important to Paul because he had no longer now to answer the trumped-up charges of the Jews. He now had to expound the heart and essence of the Christian message and to show that the gospel was not, was not tre- a form of treason against Caesar or the government. And as he expounded the gospel before the court, he had to be aware that he was not only giving information to Festus the governor or to Agrippa the king on what Christianity really stood for, enormously important though that was, but he was in a sense already addressing Caesar himself. Caesar would read the proceedings of this inquiry. Caesar would read what Paul was saying to them. These words that he was uttering now were going to the very top of the tree. You could not get any higher in the world of his day than to get the ear of Caesar. And Paul is conscious of the implications of every word he says. And the point that he's going to be making is that the gospel message is not subversive of civil order. It is not subversive of civil order. And even where the judicial process is a confusing mixture of due process, political pressure, and corruption as Rome's was, the gospel did not act as a subversive agent in terms of the political process. Festus had already declared that Paul was not guilty of a capital offense, but that conclusion had come too late because the machinery of the appeal to Caesar was already underway. Now, I think just generally, therefore, the first thing I want to say is that genuine Christian faith, although it recognizes that only God is the ultimate authority, is nonetheless submissive to the governments that God has established for society's peace and order, even when those governments, this is hard to take, even when those governments stray from their God-given mission. Okay, so as we listen to Paul here this evening, I want you to understand we're not listening only to a defendant making a case before a court of law. We're listening to a Christian witness seizing the opportunity he's been given to proclaim the gospel. Jesus had commissioned him to be a servant and a witness. That general call to be a servant had been narrowed down to a particular call to be a witness, an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus had warned Paul that he would be brought up before kings and governors on account of the name of Jesus and had promised that on such occasions the Holy Spirit would give him words and wisdom. That's in Luke chapter 21. And Jesus had told Ananias that Paul was his chosen instrument to carry his name, chapter 9, verse 15 of Luke of Acts, before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And one by one, those promises, those prophecies of Jesus are being fulfilled in the life of the apostle. So as I look at this, this picture, Paul is a witness here. I notice, first of all, how courageous his witness is. Beginning in chapter 25, verse 23, we see that a number of very important people are on the, are on the stage. They're important in, per, in, in terms of their position, 
and their power. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribune, tribunes and the prominent men of the cities. We've got a picture that there are now thousands of troops lined up, thousands of troops lined up for this great occasion. There is great pomp and pageantry. And in those days, the pomp and pageantry was meant to awe and overwhelm the onlookers. It was meant to send a tingle of fear down the backbone of the ordinary people in the street as they were confronted by these crisp, sharp soldiers of the Roman legion. As they saw the sheer exercise of might, this display of precision and splendor and pageantry, they were meant to see the awe and wonder that they should have that they were part of this Roman Empire. It was intended, in other words, to intimidate the ordinary people. Thousands of people gathered in this way. And you can imagine the contrast. Here is this great pageant, this great display of military might and imperial power. And the prisoner is summoned from his cell. And if old accounts are accurate, the Apostle Paul is no hunk. He is short, bent, with bad eyesight, eyebrows that meet together. He wasn't really, he should have plucked them really. He should have done something about the eyebrows thing. Beetling little eyebrows that kind of went up and down as he spoke, with a big hook of a nose. I mean, the caricatures are probably enormous. But he is not an impressive figure, and he's brought out in chains in front of the king, surrounded by these crisp army uniforms, bristling with weapons. In other words, the whole setup is designed to intimidate and to instill fear into the heart of the prisoner who stands before the dog. That's the picture that we have painted. And the word that's used by Luke here for pomp and ceremony here is the Greek word phantasia. And Luke has chosen this word. It's an unusual word for him to choose. It's the word from which we get our English words fantasy and fantastic. It means something that is light, something that is fleeting, passing, something of momentary interest, something that is a kind of whim and the wist and the wind. It doesn't go anywhere. It has nothing. It is ethereal. It does not possess any substance to it. And what Luke is telling you is this. Here is this great military might. Here is this pomp and ceremony and circumstance of these great and powerful people and influential people. And here is little Paul. But the pomp and ceremony and the circumstance and the military might are in the end mere breath. Steam from the kettle as it were. Nothing. They don't last. In the economy of God, these things are nothing more than passing fantasies. The, the great things of this world and the great people of this world and all the presentations of their power and influence are ultimately fantasies. They come and they go. The great men and women of this world come and strut and fret their hour upon the stage and that is the end of them. They're gone. Gone with the wind. That's what the Apostle is teaching us here. Rudyard 
Kipling was one of the great English poets. It was always a surprise to people that he was never made the poet laureate, the national poet. And in Rudyard Kipling's great recessional poem of 1897, he wrote this, The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart. Lord of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. He wrote that for the great jubilee honoring Queen Victoria, and the English people did not like this poem. They did not like this poem. The prevailing in, in opinion among scholars is that it was this poem alone that kept him from becoming the poet laureate. But he was right. The kings and captains depart. They come, they go. They strut and fret their hour, and gone they are. It's all over. And so Paul is confronted by these people. How courageous he is in his witness. He's not overawed by the show of strength. Chrysostom, one of the great preachers of the church, said, See what an audience is gathered together for Paul. Yeah, he's, they're his audience. He's not being given an audience. They're his audience. They're all set up there for him, the little preacher of the gospel, to do his stuff. How courageous his witness is. Secondly, how personal his witness is. For although there are many people in the room, and although in the back of his mind he knows he's addressing the emperor, nonetheless, he wants to, he wants to apply what he's saying to one individual in that room, whose heart he has targeted. And that one individual is, of course, the king Agrippa. Agrippa was a Jewish ruler. That is, he had some Jewish background and understanding, and Paul knows that. Paul, in fact, he begins by, by being quite uh, open in, in the praise that he gives to this man, uh, making myself my uh, defense before you today, King Agrippa. And I know, verse 3, that you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, and therefore I ask you to listen to me patiently. In other words, I know that you know, I know, King, that you know all this controversy that's going on about the Christian movement that started and its relationship to mainstream Judaism. I know that you know that there's a bit of anguish going on here in the circles. There's all this talk about the resurrection of Jesus and there's the growth of the church that now numbers perhaps, perhaps half the population of Jerusalem for all we know. And or more, and there is real anxiety, there's angst of the heart of Judaism, and, and you know all about this. I know you understand a little bit about this. And so it's in the, against the background of this, and the kind of commendation that he makes of Agrippa, that I just want you to notice, this is an important thing, you see, that he is the apostle, and we know, we know from what he wrote while he was in prison there in Caesarea Philippi, we know that he knew that people without Christ are dead in their sin. They are blind to the things of God. They're dead to the things of God without the new birth. He knew that. And yet, nonetheless, Paul also recognized that God in his common grace, that is not his saving grace, but his common grace in the lives of unbelievers, gift, gives unbelievers advantages and gifts and talents and abilities 
And even insights, those insights don't save them, but nonetheless, they're there. Paul recognizes that. He respects that, and he applauds it as he speaks to the king. Well, notice how he develops his little speech here. He talks about his religious upbringing. His credentials were impeccable. He belonged to the Pharisees. He belonged to the strictest of sects within Judaism. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 26, he says that it was for holding to the traditional hope of Judaism that he was in court. Listen to his words. Now it is because of my hope in what God promised our fathers that I am on trial today. In other words, he emphasizes the continuity between Judaism and Christianity. He's not wanting to emphasize that, in fact, Judaism is expectant Christianity, and Christianity is fulfilled Judaism. That the two are of a piece, that one is the extension of the other, that there's the period of expectation and the period of realization, the period of anticipation and the period of fulfillment. And he is emphasizing this continuity between the old and the new. There is real continuity. This is not the end of Israel. It is the expansion of Israel that is happening in Christianity. Continuity. It was the hope. The hope of what? The hope that God would keep the promise that he made to our fathers. What was that promise? What was that hope? It was the hope of a coming Messiah. That was the central hope of Israel, and everybody knew that. It was the hope that Messiah would come, that the Messianic age would arrive, that evil would be stamped out, that Satan's influence and activities would be eliminated, that universal judgment and peace would reign throughout the earth. Only Israel had that message. Other nations had insights here and there into the truth, but only Israel carried before the world that revealed truth of God. It kept it. It held it. It held it fast. It preserved it. It preserved it whole. It preserved it for us. We are grateful. We would not be here were it not for Israel. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. And that hope that was given to Israel is good news. It's the good news that we preach to the world today. Still good news. And we empty the gospel of its heart. If we represent Christianity as somehow being simply a moral code, enhanced by a few religious ceremonies, teaching people to behave as decently as they can, in view of the fact that one day the dark shadows of death, there might be a judgment beyond. That is not Christianity. There is a temptation in every area of life, in the right and on the left, to reduce Christianity to some mere moral reinforcement or rearmament or rebuilding, renewal of society. It's not that. It is the announcement of good news that the hope of Israel has been fulfilled, that the promised Messiah has arrived. That the salvation looked for has appeared. It is an event. It is a person. And this person 
has been bodily raised from the dead. Paul says that. Why, why is it that I'm on trial simply for saying that somebody has been raised from the dead? Is that impossible for God? Is that something God cannot do? I ask you, King Agrippa II, sitting beside your sister, Veronique, there on your great throne, is this something you think the God of Israel couldn't do? Tells of his religious background, what he's there for. Tells of his religious fanaticism. Because here's the discontinuity between Paul's past and his present. There's a continuity between Paul's past as a Jewish leader and his present as a Christian leader. And that is the message. The discontinuity is his fanaticism. That's the discontinuity. He reminds the king of what was well known. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew his background. They knew the rage and anger, the barely suppressed rage and anger that drove him. When in the previous chapter, Paul has nearly been killed by a Jewish mob in Jerusalem, who in their rage and anger want to kill him, Paul knew exactly how that mob felt. He knew their feelings precisely. He had felt those same feelings towards Christians. He had been there, got the t-shirt. He knew exactly the incredulity that people would feel when they talked about the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the implications of that in terms of blasphemy against the religion of the Jews was so great. Couldn't allow that. Couldn't allow it. And he had persecuted the Christians. Not because he hadn't heard their story, but because he had heard their story. And the fact that he can call these people that he persecuted saints indicates that they lived good lives. But even living good lives wasn't enough for the Apostle Paul. What they taught was incredible, mischievous, blasphemous. And in his fanaticism, he drove them to death. He tells the court not only about his religious background and his religious fanaticism, but about his religious conversion. Because he goes on to say in verse 12 of chapter 26, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, and at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. He's emphasizing a miracle that has taken place. What, what in the Middle East at midday could be brighter than the sun? Only the glory of God. Only the glory of God could be brighter than the sun at midday in the Middle East. This was a light brighter than the sun. It was a supernatural light. It was physical. It was real light. It was also metaphorical and moral and intellectual and emotional and spiritual. But it was a physical reality. It was a miracle. It was supernatural. It was the work of God. And other people were there. They witnessed it. And in this encounter with the risen Jesus, the madness that drove him evaporated. The fanaticism and the hatred that compelled him to chase Christians to their graves left him. It was never seen again. 
No matter how much persecution he faced, no matter how much opposition he faced, no matter how much contradiction from others he faced, no matter what they did to him, never from that moment on did he ever show any signs of fanaticism or hatred or wanting to bring people to death. He never showed signs of that ever again. Though he was beaten, he never responded or retaliated. Though he was cursed, he never cursed back. He was a transformed man. That encounter with Jesus banished the madness forever from the life of the Apostle Paul. He is absolutely personal here. He's changed, uh, he has been completely reorientated by the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon puts it like this, Oh, blessed epilepsy that made such a wonderful change in this man. Some, some people say he had heat stroke or it was an epileptic fit. Oh, blessed epilepsy that made such a wonderful change in this man. Would God that all who oppose the name of Jesus Christ might become epileptics in this same sense? Well, thirdly, how courageous his witness was, how personal, thirdly, how direct his witness is. Christian witness will never be regarded as a neutral thing. Look at verse 24. We didn't read it in chapter 26, verse 24. But as he's saying these things, and by the way, the, these things he's saying I'm going to revisit, so I'm not ignoring them. I'm going to come back to this chapter. As he's saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Driving you insane. You just put that in context. You hear, what, you hear what, what Festus is saying to Paul. All these great people in Rome, going along to the Colosseum, people of influence, people of power, the rich and the famous, going to the Colosseum to watch with amusement as men hack each other to death. That's not insane. But what you said is insane. In more recent times, the fanatical pursuit of communist theory that eliminates millions of human beings. We talk about communism, we talk about socialism as if they were, they were neutral ideas that you can merely talk about as ethereal discussion points. That is not insane. But what Paul is doing is insane. To start a vigorous campaign, to merely proclaim to the Roman Empire that God had raised Jesus from the dead is enough to label you out of your mind. And today, if you really stand for Christianity, you'll be called mad by some people. They may not say it directly to your face, like Festus said it to Paul, but they'll think it. They'll imply it. And get, take this. Nobody would ever call an imam in a Muslim country mad. Why not? Because they'd get a death penalty, that's why not. But they can say that to you in your country, that you are mad for following Jesus. This kind of insanity is a very discriminating insanity. You just use it against the people 
you can't stand. And what, what uh, Festus didn't know was that there was a spirit medium in Caesarea Philippi who had lived a horrible life of bondage and who had been liberated and transformed into a self-controlled human being by the very message Paul was preaching. That gospel brought him peace of mind, freedom from spiritual, mental, and, and other instabilities. But Paul is also here. You notice he doesn't just stop with his own conversion. He's concerned about King Agrippa. Three times he repeats. Three times as you read the story. We didn't read this part of the chapter, but he repeats the elements, the core elements of the gospel, three times in the hearing of the king. He does it craftily. First of all, he summarizes what Jesus commissioned him to do and tells him the gospel. Secondly, he described his obedience to that heavenly vision in terms of what he did. He goes and preaches the gospel. And then thirdly, he detailed his continuing work, what he was doing to this very day. And in doing so, he just happens to preach the gospel. You get it? He's using every opportunity he can. He's, he's kind of hammering. He's got the nail there, and he's, he's hammering it in. He's getting the gospel through. Only every opportunity, he's using the opportunity wisely to get the gospel out. And Paul knew, verse 25, that he was speaking the sober truth even though some called him mad. The scene is classic. It's a classic picture. The court must have gasped at the directness of the apostle. Just look at verse 27 for a moment. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's talking to the king. Who's Who's giving their defense here? Who's the judge and who's the defendant? King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. And see how the king responds. He's he's embarrassed. He's taken off guard. He doesn't like the direct question. He takes evasive action. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you persuade me to be a Christian? I mean, do you think think this is all it takes? You know, a little kind of interview here. You've told me your stuff. Do you think that's all it's going to take? Maybe uh, let's, you know, let's stop right here. That's that's the end of this for today. Well, I've had enough. It's it's kind of coffee hour, and there's uh, coffee and uh, and bagels waiting for us, and we really need to get on with that. But that's the end of the interview. In such a short time, you think you can make me a Christian, Paul? Look at Paul's response, verse 29. Whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now there is, there is a word of witness that is so personal, so clear, so breathtaking. A man in chains, helpless in the eyes of the world, saying to the power brokers of the world, with all my heart, I wish you were where I am. I don't wish you chains. I don't wish you to be imprisoned. But I wish you had what I have. 
I wish you knew what I know. I wish you believed what I believe. I wish you had an experience that I've had experience of. I wish you had Christ as I have Christ. That was the longing of his heart. And you can see him. Can't you see him? Paul lifting his hands. Can't you hear the rattle of the chains on his wrists as he lifts his hands to plead? I, I think Paul was a Latino kind of, you know, expressive kind of Middle Eastern kind of Mediterranean temperament kind of person that needs their hands to talk. There's a little bit of that in me somewhere. I often think there's a bit of an Italian in me. And <clears throat> I kind of hope that. But, you know, you can just lift, lifting his hands and saying, I just wish you were like me, apart from these chains, that you had what I have. And you're listening to the words of God's greatest ambassador, his greatest evangelist, telling his heart out in the name of Jesus, God's Savior for men and women, for Agrippa, for Bernice, for Festus, for Nero Caesar, for all the world to hear. And the court falls silent. And now you've heard it. Now you've heard it. Thank you for listening. What will you do with it? I wish you were. I wish with all my heart you were what I am. What Paul was. What so many of us in this room are. Minus all our inadequacies, our idiosyncrasies, but where we are, we wish you had Christ. We wish you had Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word tonight as it's come to us. We thank you for faithful people in the past like Paul who witnessed a good confession. We feel inadequate, but that really doesn't matter. We're not meant to be him. We're meant to be us. Thank you that you take us the way we are. We'll never be able to be as articulate as he was, nor will we have the opportunities that he has. But in those little ways we can, we pray that we would be faithful. And we know that your eye is on us. And that when you see us being faithful, you smile with your approval. And one day, will greet us on our arrival with your words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen.